So last week, a funny thing happened. Actually, two funny things. Well, the last one is really funny. The first one was maybe a little bit more intriguing. (laughs) So an intriguing thing and a funny thing happened last week. The intriguing thing was that I lost a bunch of followers. The funny thing is that it was for a completely different reason than what I had originally thought. Now, whatever the actual reason, it got me thinking about the last episode where Andrew McDonald and I talked about the UX bootcamp gold rush. And it got me thinking about how I can actually tack on some stuff to that last episode that helps some people out who might be about to make a really uninformed decision. So stick around and we'll break it down. UX fam, how's your mom and them? Welcome to another episode of Beyond UX Design. I'm Jeremy. If you're new here, welcome to the show. I am super stoked to have you. And if you haven't done it already, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are a regular here and you feel like you're getting something out of the show, I would really appreciate you leaving a five-star review. That'll help me out so much more than you can imagine. This week's audiobook recommendation is Customers Know You Suck by Debbie Levitt. This is a fantastic book full of actionable models, maps, processes to empower your team to improve the customer experience. It's a fantastic book full of amazing, no BS insights, and I think you should really check it out. So head on over to beyonduxdesign.com slash audible trial, start your free trial and download Customers Know You Suck completely free and help support the show in the process. And I am incredibly humbled to introduce two brand new patrons to the list of Beyond UX Design supporters, Andrew and John. Thank you so much for your support. I can't tell you how much it means to me to add your names to this growing list. And as always, thanks so much to Chris, Siraquan, Stacy, Radu, and Megan for their ongoing support. And if you want to join Chris, Siraquan, Stacy, Radu, Megan, Andrew, and John and help keep the show independent and ad-free, you can become a patron for as little as $3 a month. And if you do that, you'll get some sweet, sweet perks for your support. And of course, if you think the show is worth sharing, then I would love it if you told some friends. And for more information on how you can support the show and help more people find out about what we're doing here, make sure to check out beyonduxdesign.com support. The last week, an interesting thing happened and a funny thing happened. The intriguing thing was that I lost a bunch of followers and it was a relatively decent amount. It's the first time that I had ever noticed a drop like this in all my years on LinkedIn. And it was definitely enough for me to question what the hell was going on. (laughs) Now, I'm not particularly worried about the number of followers on LinkedIn, but I am a UX designer and obviously I question nearly everything. So the first thing I thought was, what the hell is happening? Why did I lose so many followers? That is really bizarre. Now, two things happened that day and actually three, and I'll get to the third one in a minute. Now, first, I changed my profile picture to a silly thing Hang Shu made where he photoshopped my face over his fiance. So I thought it might be possible that it offended some folks and they weren't really into that whole Mr. and Mr. Hang thing. Uh, Maybe they were disgusted by Hang's Photoshop skills. I don't know. Now, the other possibility is that people weren't very happy with an episode that we dropped that day about UX boot camps with Andrew McDonald. I thought maybe it could have been the tone. It could have been the content itself. Maybe we spent more time venting and bitching and complaining and not a lot of time giving actionable, helpful advice. So Occam's razor being what it is, what is the most straightforward explanation? And judging by the feedback that I had gotten from some folks on LinkedIn, I definitely thought that it was the second reason and not that silly profile picture. And that Photoshop job, it was amazing, Hank. Thank you very much. So that begged the question, for me at least, what were people so upset about? Was it that people just got really defensive about boot camps? Was it that they feel as if speaking critically of some boot camps tarnishes them or their experience in some way? 
And listening back to that episode, one of the complaints that I could easily see people making was it was a lot of complaining and not a lot of offering a path forward, which I totally get. And somebody on LinkedIn actually noted in the comments that she felt like it was on the verge of gatekeeping, which was definitely not the intention, but I can definitely see where she was coming from. Now, the episode with Andrew was definitely more in the style of two friends venting about stuff than the normal, helpful, actionable advice that I like to provide here on the show. So with that said, I think I could have done a better job of offering some actionable advice on what you can think about before you make that decision to drop thousands of thousands of dollars or spend years of your life learning UX design. Now, what's funny is I actually made a joke in one of the comments that there was another possibility that LinkedIn cleansed all the bots. And I figured, why would LinkedIn do that? They haven't done it yet. What's the chances that they did it that same exact day? Uh, So I thought those chances were pretty low. Turns out that is exactly what happened. (laughs) And later that day, I got a little alert in my follower section that said that they had done exactly that, cleansed the bots and all the hibernated accounts. What are the odds? I don't know. At this point, I don't think it really matters very much why my follower numbers dropped because it got my little brain thinking, and I think expanding on last week's episode is valuable to do anyway. So I'm glad that no one ended up unfollowing me because of that episode, but I am going to go with this. Now, what's kind of funny is I've had UX education on my list of show topics since the very beginning, and I had this penned in for later this year, but this episode with Andrew last week got so much attention, and it started so many great conversations that I thought it was a fitting time to follow up last week's episode with this topic today. So what I want to do today is offer some more solid advice about UX education and how to approach it. And I'm not going to bash boot camps. I'm not going to tell you which path is right for you. I'm not going to tell you to choose one. If you're just starting out and you haven't even thought about school yet, or if you have thought about schools and you haven't picked one that you like yet, this episode, I hope, will be very helpful. And I'm going to offer some advice on how to make the best decision for you in your own personal circumstances. Now, before we talk about boot camps specifically, I want to talk about the state of UX education more broadly. Now, part of the issue, as I see it at least, and this is my perspective and my point of view, is that there are really just so many different ways that someone can enter the field of UX design. It is so varied. Everyone has a different experience, and it's hard to know which route will be viable option for you. Some options are cheap. Some options are expensive. Some options require more effort on your part. Some are self-directed. Some are more guided. In the episode with Andrew, we made the comparison to architecture. And it's not an absolutely perfect comparison. I did hear from from some architects that didn't agree with me completely. But I think it's similar enough to point out some of the flaws in how we teach and hire for UX designers compared to other fields. So if you think about how many people become architects, at least in the United States, it's a pretty stringent process. According to the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, which they help to facilitate the licensing and the credentialing of architects to protect the health, the safety, and the welfare of the public. Those are their words, by the way, right from their website. Now, I pulled the following word for word from the NCARB. That's the acronym for that organization. I pulled this from their website. And here's what they say that you need to do to become an architect. And note that this is for the United States specifically. I'm not sure how this works in other places, but here's what they say. First, to become an architect, you have to earn a license from your local board by completing their specific education experience and examination requirements. The NCARB works with licensing boards to establish those national standards. So they have national standards, which I think is important. Now, first, you can earn a degree. In most U.S. states or jurisdictions, you will have to have a degree from an architecture program accredited by the National Architectural Accrediting Board. So this is another board. 
You'll also need to document real-world experience by completing the NCARB's Architectural Experience Program, which provides a framework to guide you through building up competency in essential knowledge, skills, and tasks. So this is essentially an apprentice program. So education and apprenticeship. Now, finally, all the boards require that you pass the architect registration examination, a multi-part test that aligns with the phases of the current practice. So again, an exam to get the license. And once you've completed those three steps, plus any other items required by your local board, because they might have local boards that require more, you can apply for a license and finally become an architect. So obviously, you know, places like California or where there's earthquakes, they might have some additional standards you have to learn about earthquakes or things like that. Now, it's worth noting that you don't have to go to an accredited architecture school. Depending on the state, you may be able to supplement that with hands-on mentorship if you work for an architecture firm that can actually sign for your work. So with architecture, there is a relatively standardized process. Even if you don't attend an architecture-specific program, you have to take tests, you have to get certified, and they require hands-on apprenticeship work through other licensed architects. UX, on the other hand, is kind of like the Wild West. You can go to a traditional university or four-year program. You can get a bachelor's degree, maybe an associate's degree if a community college offers something like that in UX. I'm honestly not sure if that exists, to be honest. You can take an online self-guided course. There are lots of self-guided courses online where someone will make a series of videos and you kind of do them at your own pace, a little more structured, but way more self-directed. You can teach yourself on your own. You can read some books. You can watch some videos. You can buy a few ad hoc courses. And kind of teach yourself at your own pace. This is certainly possible. It's actually how I got into UX design. I taught myself. You can become an apprentice. You might not have any experience when you start out. You might have some experience. You might have a lot of experience, but you can find a job with a team who helps give you real-world, hands-on experience to learn as you go on the job. I don't know much about TechFleet, but they're an example of this kind of approach. You can go to a boot camp, right? An intense six-month, 12-month, 12-week, eight-week, whatever program. Lots of different boot camps. They offer different time periods. Some are more hands-on. Some are more hands-off, self-paced. Some are more self-directed. Some might match you with mentors. Some might not. Now, lastly, you can do any combination of the above. You might teach yourself some stuff and then go to a boot camp. You might do a boot camp and supplement with some ad hoc Udemy courses. You may teach yourself everything and then still go to a boot camp. There are a ton of possibilities here. Now, ultimately, for UX design, there are no certifications. There are no review boards. There's no governing body to even assign these accreditations. So good or bad, I'm not making any calls here. I'm simply pointing out that the way that we can get into this field has a lot of variance and every single person may have had a somewhat unique approach. And like it or not, that's actually kind of incredible (laughs) that this profession even exists in that way. I can't think of another profession that has done something like this completely organically. Now, before I hop into some of the advice on how to approach your UX education options, I think it's worth going over a few key points to better frame the conversation, specifically around boot camps. First, many UX boot camps are teaching an oversimplified process as it relates to UX design, completely divorced from the realities, complexities, and nuances of real-life software teams. Next, many UX boot camps aren't teaching students how to think critically most likely due to time constraints and the need to cram as much as you can in a relatively short period of time. Third, many boot camps are for-profit entities that do not need certifications or accreditations to teach. Anyone can start a boot camp. Boot camps can teach whatever they want, and there is no entity that regulates boot camps. Now, before I go further, I want to stress that the first word in each of these points is many. I'm saying many boot camps. I am not saying all boot camps. 
There are an insane amount of schools, courses, instructors, educators, boot camps, university programs, the list goes on. It's impossible to lump all of these together into one monolithic thing. And anybody who tries to is being dishonest. The thing is, though, there are a couple of really big name boot camps that I believe are not doing a great job. Now, even saying that, I have talked to people at these big name boot camps who felt like they got a really great value for the price that they paid. And that is awesome. I am not here to bash the boot camps publicly. I'm not here to call them out because you could get a great instructor at some of the boot camps and have an amazing experience. And you can get a really bad instructor at some of the boot camps that I think do a good job and have a terrible experience. So I don't think calling out anybody is really helpful, to be honest. And really, Andrew and I did our share of therapeutic venting last week. So there is no venting from me this week. You have my word. Now, another thing that I want to address is this idea of gatekeeping. And honestly, I find this accusation of gatekeeping to be a very, very weird one. It kind of blows my mind. I really don't understand it. If you think about gatekeeping and what it is, in the literal sense, it's someone keeping a gate secure. It's not letting people in who shouldn't be going through the gate, letting some people in and keeping some people out. So a security guard at a gate is generally a good thing, I think. It keeps out nefarious people who shouldn't be inside the gate. I don't think anyone would argue that that is bad necessarily. Now, obviously, there are places where this might be bad. Maybe there's a good old boys club full of rich white dudes and the gatekeeper is there to keep minorities out. Obviously, that is bad. Now, when you think about gatekeepers in something like architecture, law, or medicine, I could see how these professions could be seen as a rich white man's club that wants to keep a certain type of people out. But... More often than not, the gatekeepers are there for quality purposes. Look back at that example that we talked about before with respect to architecture. There are a series of gates to keep people from practicing architecture that has no business practicing architecture. But they're also there to make sure that the schools are teaching the right things, that the instructors are teaching the right information, that schools aren't sending out tons of architects that don't actually know anything about architecture. And if they do the governing bodies can either take the accreditation away from the school, keep them from practicing, close their doors altogether, whatever. There are steps to take exams and things like that. Now, one could argue that there are additional levels of unnecessary bureaucracy, but do you want someone who doesn't know what they're doing designing your house or your office building? Of course not. And the same could be said for medicine, law, carpenters, contractors, plumbers even, I think, because if those people don't know what they're doing and they screw up, that's pretty damn serious. Now, I have to be honest, I am not sure why there are licensing boards for hairstylists and florists. (laughs) I can't imagine that much damage from a poorly arranged bouquet of flowers. That seems like a racket to me, honestly, but I don't know much about it. And if you do know why that's a thing, I would actually love to hear from you because I'm super curious. So those steps are there to ensure quality. I have a hard time thinking that this is a bad thing. Now, when it comes to UX, there are literally zero gatekeepers. There aren't any, none. There are no licensing boards. There are no governing bodies. There are no tests to take. Literally anyone can use any of those methods that I listed out earlier. And if you can convince any knucklehead that you know how to do the job and get paid for it, you are now a professional UX designer. There are no gates. There is no one to keep you out of a gate because the gates don't exist. There are no gatekeepers in UX design because by definition, they cannot exist. Now, there could be gatekeepers at certain institutions but those people cannot keep you out of the profession altogether. I think one could definitely make the argument that there should be some kind of base level certifications. And honestly, 
I'm on the fence about it. I could probably go either way, depending on the arguments for or against it. And I think when it comes to things like the medical industry, there should definitely be more rules around who can practice when it comes to designing software that could harm someone's life. But my point here is that calling someone a gatekeeper because they don't like your boot camp is just a really silly accusation to make because that person literally has zero control on whether or not you get into the field of UX design. Just because you don't like what they say does not make them a gatekeeper. It's a ridiculous argument to make. Literally anybody, given the drive, the passion, and ability to learn the skill, and also their ability to convince someone to pay them, that's also important, can become a UX designer. That person that you're accusing of gatekeeping has zero control over you. So to flip this argument around and spin it as a positive, just look at it this way. There are no gatekeepers. The only person that determines your success is you. And obviously the job market, that's definitely something to consider. But learning the skills, having a drive and a passion for doing it well, that is all in you. You control that. So I think that should be a pretty liberating thing, to be honest. Not having gatekeepers is somewhat liberating, I think. So I hope looking at it in this way will help some of you folks out there. All right, so I talked about the options for education. I got the stuff about boot camps out of the way. I talked about gatekeeping. Let's get into the meat and potatoes of the topic today. How do you decide which path into UX is right for you? Well, I can't tell you what to do. (laughs) Part of being a great UX professional is figuring these things out. If someone told you exactly what to do, I don't think you would be a very good UX designer, to be honest. But what I can do is offer some advice. I can offer some guidance, or at the very least, I can give you my opinion. So take that for what it's worth. Now, before you decide on any of the approaches or combinations of the things we talked about a minute ago, there are some things that I think you really should be considering. Now, I want you to keep in mind that I'm not talking about boot camps anymore. I'm not saying ask these questions about a boot camp. I am talking about asking these questions about any of the options that we talked about earlier. Whether this is a book that you're reading, a YouTube video you're watching, an ad hoc course from Udemy, a social media influencer, a university program, a bootcamp, podcast. Yes, you should be asking yourself these questions about me and this show too. All of it. Here are a few questions to consider. Does this approach take into account the importance of critical thinking? Am I being taught to work in a real world environment? And then lastly, who am I learning from? So I'm going to break these down a little bit. We'll talk about them in more detail. Does this approach take into account the importance of critical thinking? Am I going to learn how to think or am I going to be taught a standardized process or framework above everything else? I think out of all the skills that UX designers have in their toolbox, critical thinking is one of the most important. Critical thinking involves a lot of different aspects. And honestly, at some point, I will most likely have a full episode devoted entirely to critical thinking. But it involves things like unbiased observations and being able to ask questions about what you saw or heard. It involves things like understanding your biases, understanding other people's biases. It allows us to avoid generalizations, to find the nuances and sort out things like facts from opinion. It allows us to reflect, to not be tied down to our own ideas. It really is a cornerstone of everything that we do. It is so important. And this skill is so hard to learn on your own, I think. Now, sure, you can learn the skill without hands-on guidance, but I think critical thinking is something where it really helps to have someone there asking you really hard questions, pushing you out of your comfort zone, someone with the wisdom to understand that the things you're doing or the way that you're approaching problems needs work. Now, out of all the options above, this one might be one of the most difficult to find. And maybe the university courses have professors where you build really strong relationships with them over the years. Or maybe you're lucky enough to find a really great friend or a mentor who helps push you. 
by the sheer nature of the time constraints with boot camps and with the self-guided options like learning on your own, the digital courses, these are things you have to actively pursue and seek out. And it's unfortunate that one of the most important skills for UX designers is one of the hardest to come by. But this one is really important to try to find. And hopefully me telling you about it today, if you aren't already aware of this, you'll at least know what you don't know and you can now try to figure out how to do it. So good luck. Now, before you embark on any of these paths to UX enlightenment, please make sure that these sources are touching on important topics like critical thinking. If they are not, please don't spend the money on it. Or at the very least, know what you're getting out of it before you spend tons of cash. You should be asking questions about the curriculum before you hand over a check. Now, I know that some boot camps will have mentorship as part of their curriculum. And in that case, find out who your mentor will be. Can you change the mentor? If you don't like them or you you don't feel like you jive or you don't feel like you get along with them, can you switch? These are really important questions to ask. All right, next, am I being taught to work in a real world environment? Am I being taught the importance of pragmatism and relationships? Am I being taught how to work with product teams, engineering, stakeholders, all these things? One of my biggest gripes with UX education in general, regardless of if they're boot camps, universities, or random YouTube videos or self-taught, is that you just do not get any sense for what the real world will actually be like. And I'm not talking about hands-on experience. I've heard from people who have gone through all kinds of routes and very rarely are they given the impression that they will work with difficult product teams or difficult stakeholders or that they'll even work with a product team at all. They aren't taught about working with engineers. They aren't taught about the importance of collaboration. Most of what they're taught, and again, this is not just boot camps. I've heard this from university students too, is that linear happy path process. The double diamond is gospel type of stuff or that every time we do a project, we follow steps A, B, and C until we have happy users and delight. Whee! Very rarely do people seem to learn about the complexities of software teams. Very rarely are people taught about how teams work, things like Agile, Scrum and how designers are expected to deliver in those environments. Now, it's so hard to even go through everything here because there are so many potential possibilities. And honestly, this might be why this is rarely taught because it's goddamn hard. So before you drop a ton of money to learn UX, find out if the program discusses any of these things. And at the very least, know going into it that this will be something that you have to supplement on your own. And remember that mentors with real world wisdom should be able to help out with these things. All right, last one. Who am I learning from? Do they have experience to back it up? Do they have the results to prove the value? Can I be sure this person isn't blowing smoke on my ass? And what's in it for them? Debbie Levitt loves to ask that question. And this is a good one to figure out if what they're selling you is really all that helpful. Are there special interests that are dictating the curriculum? Are they making a profit off of this? Now, profits on their own aren't bad. This is all capitalism and people have to get paid for their time. There's nothing wrong with that. But make sure this is something that they're disclosing. If you're not paying them, how are they making money? Sponsors? Ads? Does that dictate what they say or won't say? Are they trying to just get more likes or buzz? Or are they actually in it because they care about teaching? Do they have any biases? What are they? Why? Do they have the experience to back up what they're saying? Have they worked in the profession long enough to have the wisdom to pass it along to you? Have they worked in enough industries and companies to have the varied experience to know that their experience might be only a single example out of many? Now, one thing I want to stress here is that I'm not saying you shouldn't be getting advice from people with X years of experience or a minimum of Y companies in their resume, something like that. I think nearly everybody has something important to add to a conversation. You can talk to someone with one year of experience about things like what they wish they knew when they started or what they've learned in the last year. 
what it took for them to get a job, things like that. But that person probably won't be able to talk to you about leveling up or dealing with situations that they just don't have experience to talk about. So again, use those critical thinking skills to understand their context and their experience and understand if what they're trying to sell you is applicable to you and your experience. Because sometimes what you're hearing is just noise. Or sometimes what you're hearing might be totally right for one person, but totally wrong for you. So understand who you're learning from and understand if what they're teaching makes sense for you and your situation. Now, here are some other questions to think about before you decide what route to take. Is this a reasonable amount of time? Now, this one is obviously geared more towards those intensive courses where they try to teach you things in X months or Y weeks. Now, sure, you can learn some things, but can they really teach you all those things in that amount of time? And does that sound reasonable? Which leads to the next one. Are those claims that they're making possibly true? Again, this one I hear mostly from boot camps, things like money back guarantee or land six figure job in a tech company and blah, blah, blah. Can you really guarantee those things? Can anyone guarantee those things? Can you really be job ready, quote unquote? What does job ready even mean? Being job ready leads directly to this next one. Do they work with real companies on their curriculum? Who's on their advisory board? Do they even have an advisory board? How can you be sure you'll be job ready if that company isn't getting input on what makes you ready for a job from a hiring manager's perspective? Can you be sure the skills you're learning are actually what a real hiring manager will be looking for when it comes time to start applying for jobs? The next is, what else will I need to learn? This one is really important, especially with an intensive. What will you not be learning so that you can supplement your education in some other way to learn the things you're not learning through this method? And this one is really hard because when you're just starting out, you have no idea what you don't know. There are so many unknown unknowns. How could you possibly know what you don't know if someone isn't telling you what you need to learn? Now, again, this is something that a really great mentor will be able to help you navigate. Now, there are certainly way more questions than we could possibly have time to go over here today. But I think if you start with these questions, you're going to be in a much better place than maybe 80% of the rest of the knuckleheads trying to get into UX right now who can't think for themselves. Now, before we wrap this up today, I want to stress something. It does not matter what route you decide to take to learn UX design. You will only get out what you put in. The best school or teacher cannot help you if you are not willing to put in the work. A mentor won't be able to help you if you aren't really showing up to those sessions bringing thoughtful questions, if you aren't ready to accept the feedback that they offer, if you're not willing to put the time in, put the effort in, you won't get much out of any of these education options, regardless of if they're a boot camp or not. So regardless of what path you choose, know that you will have to put in the effort. It's not going to be handed to you and nobody can guarantee you anything. No one can guarantee you anything. Please remember that. Well, all right, y'all, that's it for me for today. I hope to help clear the air a little bit from that last episode and help give a little bit more actionable, helpful advice than just complaining about boot camps the whole time. But I'd love to know, what was your experience with a boot camp? I really want to know. Do you have some that you feel are doing it right? I would really like to know because I would love to share those with other people so they can also find those resources and help them to learn UX design the right way. Let me know what you think on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at hello at beyonduxdesign.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you feel like you're getting something out of the show, I would love it if you left a five-star review. That'll help me out way more than you can imagine. And if you know somebody who might find any of this stuff useful, why don't you tell them about it? That would be fantastic. If you want to help keep the show independent and ad-free, check out all those Patreon sponsor packages at beyondnewxdesign.com support. 
You can join Chris, Siroquan, Stacy, Radu, Megan, Andrew, and John by supporting the show for as little as $3 a month. And there are some sweet, sweet perks like that badass holographic Beyond UX design sticker. You can get a shout out on the show every week. There's even a package to meet with me for 30 minutes every month, but those are running out. Head on over to beyonduxdesign.com slash audibletrial to download Customers Know You Suck by Debbie Levitt. Sign up for a free 30-day Audible trial, cancel at any time, and the book is yours to keep forever, and you still get to understand why customer experience is such an important thing in today's software landscape. Win-win, baby. I partner with audible.com, so anytime you sign up for a free trial, you'll help support the show. There's no obligation, and you can cancel at any time, and the audiobook is yours to keep forever. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter and check out all those past episodes at beyonduxdesign.com. I hope you keep coming back for more great UX tips from Beyond UX Design. And until next time, remember you're more than a designer because there's more to UX than design. I'll see you around. Take care, y'all.